Okay, let's, let's move on to our, our next. We're going to reset here just a little bit. I want to start talking about uh, the, the same-sex attraction stuff because that's everywhere I go, everybody wants to at least discuss that and talk about that. Or some people really don't want to. And I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have to believe a thing I say all day long today. When you walk out, you can think exactly how you want to think. And I'm okay with that. What I am going to ask you to do is just to think. Uh, think. Read what, what we can read, talk about what we can talk about, and at least ponder and consider. The most important thing I want you to understand is I'm not trying to come out with a position today to tell you exactly how to think about something. The church is pretty good at setting down issues, and we need to let these people know where we are. What I'm most worried about is the relational part. If our theology is getting totally in the way and how we're presenting theology to somebody else is getting in the way, then maybe we're going to have to, to ask the question, what can we do to do a better job relationally? Because I think theologi theologically we're, we're pretty good. But bottom line is, I want us to have compassion, love for, for students that are dealing with this. And one of the first questions most kids want to talk about is, I think things are uneven between heterosexual uh, sexual. Uh, behaviors and attitudes and homosexual behaviors and attitudes. So I want to start out there with that question because I think that's a, a legitimate question. Uh, and I, I'll show you how we read uh, scripture here in a little bit. I'm going to start out with what I'd call a uh, heterosexual sex problem inside the church. And uh, this is a story you know pretty well already. Uh, you have the church in Corinth, which was uh, a pretty metropolitan, you know, happening kind of place, a lot like Lawton, Lawton uh, here, lots, lots of metropolitan, lots of people moving in, moving out, all those things going on. And Paul comes back and says, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. Now, it's not saying in the culture, it's saying in the church. And of the kind that does not occur even among the pagans. So what's going on? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you, church, are proud. Well, Paul couldn't stand that. So he's going to come back and say, we've got to deal with this. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and have him put out of your fellowship? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's pretty tough stuff. Goes on. Says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexy, immoral people. And he clarifies, not meaning the immoral of the world. What I'm telling you is, you would need to go, you, you would not have to leave the world if you, you were to do that. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, reveler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, this is starting to sound pretty severe, especially to the generation of kids. Some of you may remember uh, days when we used to disfellowship people, uh, and maybe too often. Uh, I had one of my best friend's dads was disfellowshipped from our church long ago. Uh, thought it was always interesting. His dad had found a lady in Italy and was in Italy when he got disfellowship, which I never did quite understand how we were removing our fellowship when he was on a different continent. But they are going to go, wow, this, this is pretty tough stuff. We're going we're to go towards something that's going to sound very uh, marked. Uh, when you're assembled, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. But what's the result we're looking for? And his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. We want him to wake up. 
We want him to see he's in the pig pen. And we want him to come home. That's why we're doing all these steps that sound very severe. So, when we talk about any other sexual sin, are there, is there evidence here that Paul at least would go, we're going we're gonna to address this stuff. We're not going to play with this. This is not funny. This is not something we can tolerate. This is evil within the walls of a church. It may be out there. We, we'll deal with it as best we can, but bottom line is in here, there should be a different standard in place. And our kids need to understand and know that. They need to understand because they may be saying, oh, we've got to hide in this building because we don't want to be affected by those people out there. Well, that's, that's not going to work very well because we're never going to grow if we don't reach out. So they've got to know the difference in those two. But this scripture speaks to that greatly. And then, I, then I, we start talking about if we are going to do anything and interpret scripture in general, this is a scripture that I, I take them to with the homosexuality issues, and there's actually several of them here. And these are, are called uh, many times what, what they call clobber verses by folks who don't really like what some of them say. And I tell them one of the, the special things with interpreting and looking at issues is you want to read widely. Don't just read one scripture. It's, not, it's a bad idea. Uh, you want to read as everything you can about all the different scriptures. And then we'll start, I'll actually have the students, you know, read them themselves. And I said, before I say anything at all, I would have them read every single one of these scriptures and say, you write down what you think it says, and then we'll talk about it. And I do that to help them think on their own. Uh, the Bible, for the most part, uh, is written for the common man. Uh, it's not written for a bunch of Bible professors. I, I'm surrounded by a bunch of smart people. And they can find little nitpicky things all over the place. But bottom line is, uh, it was not written for professors. It's written for the people to understand and get. Uh, even the Greek that was used was a very common Greek. It was not a fancy Greek uh, language. So you read it. You tell me what it says. And they'll come back, and they'll come back with some things that would sound just like everything you and I have said. Here's the difference. They're willing to say, I don't think these... I don't really buy it. And you go, but what do you think it says? I think it says what you think it says, or what my church says it is, but I'm just not willing to go there. It's hard, hard to argue with that, that point, right? So I'm still going to call them back to Scripture, but I'm going to also tell them there are some things in, the, in this, some of these Scriptures that are not what I would call definitive talk about homosexuality as well that we have always thought is homosexuality, such as the Genesis 19 uh, version of the Lot story where the two angels come in from out of town. Uh, when you look at that story and look at what was really going on, we're talking about homosexual rape. That's, that's what I call the primary problem. Now, are there some other things going on, though, in that, that uh, verse? And, and you'll hear... Uh, uh, things like uh, when a nation would, would try to conquer another nation, they might rape the commander of the nation that was conquered, and that's what was going on here. Or this was for outsiders, that, that they were treated like this to keep outsiders out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and you can think back through, well, what was Lot offering them? He was offering 
daughters and, and things that I do not understand why he was saying that. And I'll just tell you right now, that doesn't make any sense to my daddy mind at all. But he was offering them another kind of sex, not trying to, trying to just get these guys out of town. They, they were saying, we are going to have sex with these men, forcefully. And if you can imagine the scene of the city that every man, every man in the cities outside that house saying, I'm going to have sex with you. This was a society that had come off the hinges. This was a society that thought rape was okay. No one besides Lot seems to be going, no, 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 no. Let's, let's don't do this. There's no one stopping the crowd. If something were to happen outside this building and you guys were walking out, somebody in this room would say, hey, uh-uh, not as long as I'm around, and you would stop it. Not inside them. So there was obviously something going on, and that was a pretty immoral place. And we know the city was destroyed. What exactly was it uh, that got it destroyed? There, there's all sorts of little, little things that you can talk about and, and know. But as you go through here, you'll see the Leviticus passages, 18 and 20, where it just talks about man should not lie with another man as a woman. You, you, and you know these, and you, you've understood these. Uh, some of the harder ones to, to deal with sometimes are the ones that are pretty plain, pretty specific in Romans. Uh, I, I try to, to be, once again, honest with our students. Some of these are, are more useful to talk about same-sex attraction because we're talking about consensual versus rape. And the rape, of course, I think we'd all say that's awful, it's terrible, shouldn't happen, heterosexual, homosexual, that's just a bad thing. But we had a society that was struggling uh, with its moral code. I tell them, though, as we interpret all those scriptures, one of the things that we need to bear in mind constantly is that Jesus said there are two great commandments. And not only Genesis helps us with theology, but also these great commandments also help us, and they, they will uh, assist us when we're going, we're struggling with something. One of which is love the Lord your God. Put Him first. You don't put your sexuality first. You're putting God first. You're asking what's His plan, not what's my plan. What's culture think about it? Doesn't matter. I want to know what's God think. And the second one is loving your neighbor as yourself. If love is not part of the equation, we're in, pro we're in trouble. Um, here's, here's what I try to talk about a lot before we even get into some of these big subjects with, with the students that are controversial. I'll tell them this is a, a great grid. And then I'll take them to the John 8 story of the prostitute who was caught with, you know, who was caught actually in the act of sex. And the crowd's there to stone her. And as they are there, I tell them, watch for two things from Jesus. Two things. One, he protects her from the crowd, right off the bat. And he says this little phrase, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And of course, the men start dropping the rocks because none of them could handle that. Who was the one person there who could have thrown a stone? Jesus. But did he? No. He protected her from the crowd. And they were using her just as much as the man who was sleeping with her was using her. It was just a, a ploy to get at Jesus. So he protected her. He says, 
who condemns you? She says, no one, sir. He says, I don't either. And then he says, go and sin no more. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Says you're off the hook, but go and sin no more. He loved her, but he also said, here, here are my teachings. Here's what I can help you understand about God. Don't do that again. Don't treat yourself like that. Don't let men treat yourself like that. And you see the two sides of him saying, I'm not condemning you, not judging you anymore, but the lifestyle should be different. He loved her right where she was, but said, I'm not content to leave you there. And he says, you're made for something better. And there's people in culture who want to accept this side of Jesus and say, don't, don't judge me, you don't judge me, but they don't want this second half. And then we have some churches that just want to do this side and don't protect, especially in this area, especially as we talk. So I will start almost every talk with teenagers with things talking about forgiveness, grace, and love. But I don't let them off the hook and say, do whatever you want to. I don't care if you're heterosexual, homosexual, doesn't matter. We need to have integrity of we're going to do whatever God has called us to do. So uh, that, that's a biggie, and it helps them as they interpret. Uh, why I tell them to read on the topic widely, I will have a student read this, and this particular version about, uh, about Sodom, it'll say, here's why the people of Sodom were destroyed. And it'll say they were arrogant, prideful, and they didn't take care of the poor. And the people who use this are typically people who are doing parachurch organizations in starving countries. And they say, if y'all don't give... Y'all are going to be destroyed. And, and they, I, I've actually heard them kind of use that as their verse. The problem is, there's another verse over in Jude, verse 7, talking about the same thing. Here's why Sodom was destroyed, and it says it was the immorality. So which is it? Arrogance? Prideful? Didn't take care of the poor? Or is it sexual immorality? And I would say a bold yes. Both of them. I think both of them. Both of them were wrong. Both of them were problems. And God wasn't happy with any of it. Consequently, he, he takes a, a city right off the face of the earth. But I said, if you were a kid just reading one verse, that's where you'd get. So you need to keep looking. What's the mind of God? How, how did he set things up? From Genesis, we, we get some strong hints. Uh, the clobber verses, everybody worries about all those. Here's, here's the part that I struggle with, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I don't say this with glee, but I look for things that, that have God's blessing, and I look at, at the institution of heterosexual marriage all through the Bible, and it's blessed, it's blessed, it's blessed. Song of Solomon, a whole book talking about romantic love and sexuality, and it's a man and a woman, and, and there's all these things about the bride being the church and Jesus being the groom. And you see this over and over and over again. And, and I don't throw those verses out to go, well, see there, see there, see there. But I keep looking for, if there's another way, where's the blessing from God? I Honestly, I mean, I've looked. I've, I've struggled as I've had kids going, I'm, I'm dealing with something that's really hard and difficult for me to accept and understand. And I'm going, take away all those verses, and I'm still looking for where's the blessing from the Lord? And I just don't see it. And I'm sorry. 
but I just can't release uh, my opinion to say it's everything's okay. Do whatever you feel like. Uh, so we're trying to teach them not only just to, to deal with an issue, we're trying to teach them about all issues, uh, anything they want to study. Uh, it could be alcohol. You know, that's, that's our live topic in this day and time because kids are drinking a whole lot more than you and I did, I think, growing up, and it's, it's pretty accepted. Uh, pornography, you know, what, what's God think about pornography? Well, there, there's some things to watch for and things to think about, about keeping your mind pure and, and all that to help you with pornography, but it's not open and shut, but you get some strong hints about be careful. Don't, don't do certain things like that. Um, let me keep going. This is getting tough. Let me take you through just a few, few things just for you to understand the other side. Uh, people who say these two verses in Leviticus say they, they are not conclusive. Uh, I would say the, these are pretty blunt, pretty to the point. Uh, some would say this is uh, mixed in with a bunch of other things that we don't pay attention to, and that's right. But I would say, too, back that some of the things that this talks about are actually kind of echoed in the New Testament at some, in some ways, saying uh, things that, that are supposed to be more lasting tend to wind up in both Old Testament and New Testament. And there's some of the funny laws about eating and all that that disappeared uh, and you kind of have to sort that out with them. But obviously sexuality is a little bigger deal uh, in most cases. Here's, uh, you know, I think we've already talked about this. I'm not, I'm not going to go into those because those are pretty similar in format. Uh, I do want to talk about this, 1 Corinthians 6. There are some vocabulary problems or wording problems in 1 Corinthians 6 that you at least need to be aware of. Uh, there's the terms male prostitute and homosexual offenders, uh, there are not words in the Greek that really match up with that exactly. So they did the best they could with it. I'm going to show you the Greek words themselves. Oops, sorry. Here they are. Malakoi, which is that first one. And what, what they think, is as best I can tell, and this is once again... Just, just opinion from reading a lot of scholars. They're talking about the practice of older men having younger men who were kind of part of their teaching, or their learning team, learning uh, mentees. They were the mentors. Kids were the mentees who had actual sexual relations as kind of their payoff to get to hang out with the older guys. And there was, there is in the history book some reference to that. Uh, all I can tell you is that word malakoi is not quite as exact as our English translations would have you say. So I just want you to be aware you can't just bank on that, just point at the word and go, we're done, because they may challenge you on that. And I, I want you to be aware. The second word is a little more uh, direct. There, there's a kind of a reference back to Deuteronomy with that word and some of how that word was formed, at least in Paul's writing. So that's a little more certain, but realize you may hear that back. And that's, once again, I, I want you to know that that's still under a lot of debate with a lot of scholars. Here's, here's what I worry about using that particular passage, and I've, I've already kind of shown you. This is how we read that verse in our churches. Hear what I'm saying? You know, if... if Letter size is a shout. That's what we do. 
those words should be read at the same decibel level all the way through, including things like adulterers and about those that are thieves and greedy, which I don't know if last time I've heard a sermon series on being greedy in my church. It's like a sin that doesn't exist. But see, it's in the same list. Drunkards. Got a few of those at our place. Slanders. People a little bit loose with the truth in their words. I know y'all don't have that here at Western Hills, uh, but we do a few at our church. But those are people are not addressed. It's got to be equal. We've got to be careful because we send a really bad message if we keep that up. Let me keep rolling. Here's, here's the passage that really is difficult to, to make sound uh, like everything's okay dealing with same sex. It is the only verse in the whole Bible in which it talks about male and female what sounds like consensual sex. Uh, it is not written, I don't believe, and I think if you look at the way it's written in the context around this verse, it is not written to say, here's the definitive word on same-sex attraction and uh, behavior. It is an example of us sometimes rebelling against the created nature of God that God put into place. It is saying we are smarter than you, God. It is we can eat from this tree, God. And they just pulled this example up as an example not to do a, a sermon series on same-sex attraction. Um, one of the things that this says at the very end, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. That does not mean that God gave up on them, and I, I'll tell them that that God still lives out the prodigal son story. And for some of you in this room, uh, I just want to tell you, I have had a child who's been a prodigal. And I don't want to tell you all the storyline, but bottom line is, uh, about three years, I felt like I had lost my daughter. And I taught her better. I taught her well. I thought, she chose otherwise. So she went to the far country. Luckily, she woke up after about three years, and it was a hellish three years. I'd be sitting in this pew, and they'd turn the lights down for the invitation song, and I would cry. And I remember waking up every morning thinking about her and her only when she was in the far country. And every night before I went to bed, that's all I thought about was her. And every day when there was a lull in my schedule, I thought about her. And I understood that scripture in, in the Luke 15 when it talks about how that father looked down the road every day. That was me. Man, I live that. I understand that scripture. But at some point, I had to let her go. And she went down, and she went down hard, and it was tough, and it was difficult, and she finally woke up. But I couldn't stop her because she was an adult. And a lot of your kids, I'm not going to tell them that, but they can do pretty much what they want most days. 
whether you like it or not. And God at some level says, if this is what you want, if you're going to rebel against what I've called you to, that's your deal. And I'll let you go, but I still want you back. This one is hard. This one you have to, have to twist around a little bit more, and you'll hear different renditions of this with people saying, hey, that's not what he meant. Uh, but I, I can't get around this one. This is pretty blunt. I'll actually have kids read this and tell them, you tell me what it says. Uh, and they have a hard time. Uh, this is where I think the Bible speaks sometimes better than what we can do with our words. And so I let the word speak as much as I can. Uh, what we're trying to fight against is the fact that God made man and woman in his own image and then sometimes we return the favor. We make God into our image. Uh, I'm not willing to let that happen on my watch. So I try to be very careful about uh, trying to overstate or understate what God says. But when he speaks, I try to speak where he is. Uh, question comes out many times that Jesus never said anything about same-sex attraction. You know, it, it's, and it's a, I think it's a good question. Uh, if, if it's so wrong, why didn't Jesus say something about it? You can get on all sorts of sides of this, is that Jesus uh, may have not thought he needed to in that day and that time, that it may be a pretty much a norm uh, of that time that that was not right. Uh, I, then I had to ask the question, did Jesus talk about anything sexually when he was here? Because, you know, he was God's son, but he was down here. So did he speak about anything? Well, actually, he did speak about some things regarding that. And once again, I told you it was never blessed by him. And if you'll notice, and this is a great lesson for all of us here at this point in time, remember there is a difference between the culture and us. There should be at all times. And Jesus, if you look at that, I don't think Jesus would be on Facebook talking about politics. Am I stepping on anybody's toes right now? Even that little question about the money, who's does this money go to? And he goes, who's, who's on the coin? That was about it as far as politics went for Jesus. He steered clear of it. And it, there were people saying, are you trying to make this big, big kingdom? No. Got a bigger one in mind. Bigger kingdom. More influential. Kingdom of God. Oh, wow. Okay. So he, he stayed out of certain areas. It seemed like on purpose. Politics was one of those. So... Be blessed in the reading of that word uh, to you. But what did he do? Well, he does reference biblical marriage, heterosexual marriage. He gives advice on divorce. And remember, we're talking about a single guy. A single guy. Get, imagine a single guy coming here today to talk about sexuality with you. And you're going, you don't know what you're talking about. Why are you even talking to this? Well, Jesus did. And Jesus did have strong opinions about sexuality about marriage. He chastised those men for divorcing their wives on a whim because they burned the toast that day. He was not opposed to talking about sexuality and relationships in spite of the fact he walked out of this world single. So it's important. Uh, as we look at different facets of this, I want you to understand the adolescent dilemma that's going on. And boy, that's really small. I'm going to have to read that for you. Average age, and we're going to talk about how kids have to deal with some of these things, especially same-sex attraction. These kids are becoming aware their experience is different than others at the 
the ripe old age of nine on average. Okay? Nine years old. They're finding out, I don't, I'm not attracted to the same gender that my buddies are or my girlfriends are. Nine years old. Next, the, the sexual experience with the same sex typically happens at 14 to 17 is fairly typical. If you're watch, watching and, and uh, looking at the stats, and as far as being willing to wear that identity, a lot of them are coming out to their parents and friends. By the way, they usually come out to their friends first. It's kind of like a trial balloon before they go talk to their parents. It's somewhere around 16 to 18 years old. Now, here's what I, I want you to really bear in mind. They're discovering this at nine, and they're coming out pretty late in their high school career. What's that like for the kid? all those years when they don't tell anybody certainly not going to come tell the church that's lonely that's anxiety times 10 times 100 and puberty is happening and all this stuff is going on they're hearing teaching our teaching and all that and nobody knows except for them and finally, eventually, they'll openly disclose at 17, 18 years old, and they'll actually say, I am gay. Or I struggle with same-sex attraction. These kids are dealing with some really, really difficult times. That's where the church comes in. We have not been very good at that. And once again, I said, theologically, we're in, on some pretty good places, but relationally, we're, we hadn't done so well. We've got to get to becoming askable people. We've got to be people who can not be shocked by what these kids bring us. And one of the things that uh, I want to make really clear in this dilemma is that girls and guys tend to come to this little situation a little differently. The girls themselves uh, typically will label themselves with that gay label before they're, they become sexually active with somebody else. They will say, I know that, I recognize that, this is who I am. The guys tend to label after the sexual activity starts. There's a little more stigma with guys, I think, uh, is where that's coming from. So I want you to be aware for girls, uh, they are, tend to be a little more comfortable initially. Guys tend to be a little less comfortable revealing this. And so there is a difference there between guys and girls. If the girl feels same-sex attraction, Many times she will describe herself as bisexual first. That's once again kind of another step before they may reveal to you later, I am gay. Uh, the guys, on the other hand, rarely do that. They will uh, describe themselves sometimes, but the majority do not uh, deal with that. First conversation. This is where you guys come in. How will you react if someone said, one of your kids said, I'm, I'm gay. Uh, everything that comes up in this, this little list I'm going to give you will determine whether there's a second conversation. So take, a, take notes on this one, especially. First thing you say to a kid who comes out is to thank them. Thanks for your courage. Thank you for trusting me. Uh, thank you for being this vulnerable. 
because I know this was hard. And you're probably not going to be talking to a nine-year-old. You're going to be talking to someone who may be 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. But when they say those words, I pray you will think back to this list and say, thank you. This means a lot. Second thing, God loves you. They need to hear that because some of them think God doesn't love them, and that is not true at all. Third one should go right behind it. We love you. And by the we is, you can say I, but I hope you can kind of bring the church and, and all the people that know them and love them, bring them all together in that kid's mind. We love you. Now, that's easy to say. Here's the next one that I think is really important. We want you here. Because they're anticipating you not wanting them here. It's the last thing that should happen. We do want you here. We want you to be a part of this family still. Uh, for parents, same deal. I cannot tell you the, the number of kids I've seen go home and at least talk to their parents and say, I think I am, and their parents say, get out. It's awful. I see the pain in the kids' eyes that they thought family was really family. It didn't feel like family when they are told to get out. Once again, my own kid. She walked, walked away for a while from the Lord and us, but there was always a message that I gave her to let her know this principle. You can always come home, baby. Always come home. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. I want you to know you are always welcome in this home. And she did, finally. And some of you may have kids who are still living the prodigal life and they hadn't come home and it hadn't been as quick for you. And, and I, I don't know if you ever get them home sometimes. I know that that's a possibility. But our kids need to know that they can come home and that this is a family. And the church, especially, has to act more like the good families that are saying that message. You can always come home. If we are not family, if we don't start acting like family, they will find another group that does feel to them like family. Know what I'm talking about? We've got to be a church that really lives out that Luke 15 story that throws parties for people who come home who have messed up and they know they've messed up and they're going to walk in the door and they think they're going to have to do some type of service to, to show how sad they are and instead we start throwing them a party. There haven't been enough parties in our churches. Really hadn't. So, it's time for us to throw some of those parties again, and I hope we will. Last one, can I follow up with you? That is saying, this is not just a one-time talk. This is, this is a journey. We are on it together. And from this point on, I want to be able to talk to you and, and ask you how life is going, how you're feeling. And this has everything to do with this kid knowing and understanding he's always got somebody with him or her. Someone's always in your corner. And you may do some things that I disagree with, but I'm still with you. I'm still going to walk with you. And uh, I had a, 
young lady at ACU, she walked in my office last week and she started telling me all this stuff that she had done wrong and, and she was ashamed and she felt sad and, uh, and I said, can I, can I keep this relationship going with you? And she said, absolutely. And then she told me, I tried to kill myself three times last semester. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you serious? Three times? Yes, sir. And I got my card out and I said, this is my cell number. And you're going to have that. And you're going to call me if you ever, ever start thinking those thoughts again. Because you see, last year I had to sit through a memorial service for another kid at ACU who killed themselves in the dorm. And unfortunately I heard one at OC, same thing. And I just said, I'm sick of going to memorials for kids who are in college who thought there is no way out. There's no one to walk with me. I'm totally by myself. I said, you were never by yourself. Never. Call that number. I don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You call that number. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. So she took the card. And this is last week. I've called her three times. How's today feel? How you doing? I can't call her every day, but I'm making sure she's consistently in a good spot. She said, every day, we're getting better. We're getting better. We're getting better. This kid dealing with some of these things that are so much a part of them that they're struggling with, they need to know somebody's there checking on them, making sure they're doing all right, and reminding them of all the things you've reminded them. God loves you. We love you. We want you here. God loves you. We love you. We want you here. If you can do that, I think you will have a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh conversation. That's what will make a difference. Uh, I, I think you know the suicide rates of kids who are dealing with same-sex attraction is extremely high. Here's why. If they tell their parents, and their parents reject them, they tell their school, their friends at school, and their friends reject them, and they tell their church, and their church rejects them, they go through this triple rejection. There's nobody there. If the gay culture does not accept them, which is fairly rare, they're, they use they're pretty accepting uh, on the whole, but if they reject them, suicide rates are really high. But let me tell you the most specific, important group from all those, parents. Parents. If the parents, if you don't hang in there with them, it is really difficult for them to handle all the other rejections. But if you hang in with them as a parent, it is big. And the students will tell me the difference maker it is for their parents to have that. 30-40%, depending on who you look at in research, have attempted suicide who are dealing with same-sex attraction. Uh, interesting thing I found uh, a while back is I always thought that uh, if they were in one of the places like San Francisco or Houston, Texas, where there's a large gay population, that these kids would not be as suicidal. And, and as I looked at the research uh, there in the suicide prevention resource, uh, it found that the urban areas that were very friendly to gays, the suicide rates are exactly the same as what you call rural conservative America. So there's something going on. There's some, there's some rejection, some loneliness, some isolation that you're feeling that is really difficult for us if we don't address that at some level. A great book, Us Versus Us. 
This is Andrew Marin, who works specifically with the gay population, who is a Christian, conservative Christian, who uh, has talked and, and conversed with many, many gay students up in Chicago. And here's what he found. 54% of gay students leave church before they are 18 years old. So it's right about the time that they reveal, or just before they are, are leaving the church, which means that we're not doing a very good job thus far. 76%, though, are willing to return to the church. So, so we're not talking about kids who don't have a spiritual bone in their body. These are kids who love, the God, love God. But for some reason, churches turned them off or they felt rejected because we didn't communicate some of the things we talked about. And uh, that's, I think that's going to be very important for us. 80% of them continue to pray even though they have been estranged from church. They're still praying to God. They just are not a part of a church body in general. Um, a few things for parents uh, of kids going through this. I want to be really clear that a lot of times you as a parent blame yourself for this. And I would just tell you, I don't, I don't think that that is deserved in most cases. Uh, one of the things you need to be aware of and realize is that uh, this particular uh, syndrome happens across the board. My, my wife does this th thing. Our kids do something stupid and she'll say, what did I do wrong? And she'll point at herself. And when my kids do something stupid, I typically go, that kid's an idiot. You know, uh, that, that I don't take the blame at all. But mamas tend to do this a little more. So dads, you need to help your wife deal with this and say, this is not you. Most of you have taught your kids really well. And if they make some choices that you don't like, you're just going to have to go, they're either in a learning process or, or they're just on, on their own. They're adults uh, in many cases. Uh, when they're younger, they're more our responsibility. You're more responsible for their behavior and attitude. As they get older, they're going to be their own people. They have their own faith. And they're going to have to figure out if it's theirs or if it's yours. So uh, be aware of that. Second, secondly, students can carry this secret for years and when they reveal to their parents, they typically think they can just say this and their parents be at the same level and process it all as quickly as they have told them. And the reality is, and I tell my students that are going to do this with their parents, I said, you need to give them a, while, a little time to, to catch up. This is hard. This is difficult for a parent to deal with. It's going to take them some time to process through all the things you're going to say. So give them some grace back as well. Third, uh, some of you are going to have real contradictory feelings about your kids and your faith and all that. And I'm just going to tell you that's normal. Uh, those things are hard because you love your kid, but you may not like the decisions they've made or what's, what they're dealing with. Uh, all I'd say is you need to be aware that that conflict is going to be there. And I'm glad you love them and you're going to want to kill them at certain times. I, all of us want to kill our kids, correct? We, we've all had that moment in time where we want to kill them. And uh, luckily, I did not kill mine, so I got to have grandkids. And so it's all worked out really well uh, here at this, at this point. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to this. The question is, it's not fair for me to have to live with a temptation for a lifetime. And I'll take them to this little verse in 2 Corinthians to say, this verse is talking about one of God's incredible workers, and yet, for some reason, he got a no. So uh, it's just, once again, a thought to think about. And all of us have something that we deal with throughout our lives. 
Uh, it may be a different, have a different name or a different temptation on it. But if you look at this, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I plead with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will burst, uh, boast and more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. You would think if God would say yes to anybody, it would be Paul. I mean, the apostles, they were, they were good. But when they're in Jerusalem, he kind of said, you guys take Jerusalem, I'm going to take the rest of the world. And he did. And he got shipwrecked and stoned and beaten and all that stuff. True, incredible spiritual man. Yet God said, I know you're begging, I know you're pleading, but you're going to have to keep dealing with this. And my grace is sufficient. But he didn't say yes. And it sounds like it was for a lifetime. We don't know exactly what the thorn was. But it doesn't sound good. Doesn't like, sound like something that you would want to carry for a lifetime. Yet he did with his own faithful, faithful servant, Paul. All of us have to carry something, most likely. And sometimes I wish I could just carry what you have. And you think, I'd like to carry what you have. None of you want to carry my burden for three years. When my daughter's gone. None of you. I didn't want it personally. But I carried it. And I kept praying. I want this to turn out well. But I've got friends who have kids who are in the far country and theirs hasn't come home yet. And they may not. And the Lord says, my grace will be sufficient. It's okay. So where's the good news? That passage in 1 Corinthians that we read earlier, all those bad things that you could be doing. Here's the ending of that. And that is what some of you, look at the tense of the verb, were. You were some of those things. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, there's hope. There's hope. I'm sure they still struggle with some of those things from time to time. I'm sure that they, they probably did some of those things from time to time. But he says, the power of my spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ is going to take care of that. It's going to be all right. All of us have some of these things going on in our lives that we're going to struggle with. And uh, each one of those is going to be, be significant uh, for us. And that's probably where I better stop for now. Uh, we're going to go one more round. And if we can go 10 minutes... We'll start in here at 5.20, and I'll try to get you out of here on time, okay? Thank you all. You're doing great. If you guys can hit it. All right, I'm going to try to get, you, get moving. We're going to go really, really fast now. And uh, so you may have more questions at the end of this going, I don't understand you talking so fast, but I'm going to try to be cognizant of our time here. I want to go back to one, uh, one last part of this uh, past session to tell you about building bridges because that's I'm all about that with kids who are dealing with same-sex attraction, especially in church situations. And so I want to just take you through a few steps that I think are incredibly important. First of all, seek to understand each person's journey. Everybody, I think you know and understand, we don't know exactly the cause of, of a variety of these things. There, there are some guesses, there's some clues, but nothing definitive. So, 
One of the things I'd say is we need to listen and help them to feel like we have listened to them and what they've gone through and heard uh, from their own words, not give them a lecture on everything. Secondly, ask them the question, are you willing to submit to God's will no matter what? The question can also be pointed to each one of us. Do we submit to God's will no matter what? Uh, that is a common theme throughout the Bible, including Jesus in the garden, saying, I don't want to go to the cross. And he begs his father, if there's any other way but this way. And his father said, I need you to go. And he submitted. That's a common theme that we want to start with and we want to share with them about anyone dealing with sexual sin of any type. doesn't matter what it is. We're just going to ask, will you submit no matter where we land on that? Uh, with same-sex attraction, I typically will not use the word, word homosexual, and here's why. Uh, it has some really negative connotations to it. I know it's biblical. And I know that's what the Bible calls it, but why try to hack people off with a term when you can use other terms that are just, uh, just the same or, or something they would understand? Here's the reasoning. Homosexual equals Bible. Bible equals Christian. Christians a lot of people think, are anti-gay. And I know uh, that you're not anti, but that's what they think. Winds up being anti-me if I'm dealing with that. So by the term I use, I turn you off right at the beginning of the conversation. So I will use the term that they feel more comfortable with, same-sex attracted, uh, gay. Uh, I will just say that instead of using the, the term homosexual. Uh, once again, it's a small thing, but I think it's a big deal to them uh, from what I can tell. Uh, using trite phrases like, you know, we love, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. They know those phrases, and we just need to, don't, don't be trite in the way we say stuff like that. Uh, don't, don't use the you know, Adam and Eve, it wasn't Adam and Steve uh, type stuff uh, with them as they're revealing, I'm wanting to talk to someone about this. Uh, four, call all people to sexual integrity equally. That means we need to be more fair-handed with how we approach all parts of sexuality. I don't want to ever come to a church and just talk about just this topic. I want to talk about it all. And, and our kids are all struggling with sexual temptation of various kinds. So that's, that's big. Next one is don't allow your sexuality to be the starting point of the conversation. That's not their main identity. If you'll listen... You'll hear it in the order in which they introduce themselves. I am a gay accountant. I'm a gay teacher. I'm a gay entertainer. I'm a gay... And their identity is always first. Sexual identity is always first thing that they're saying out of their mouth. And I'm going, that, that's not right. Now, they may be a teacher. They may be, you know, an accountant or whatever. But that's not the lead identity for any of us. Uh, sometimes I have a kid walk up to me at ACU and say, I just want you to know I'm gay. And I'll go, good to meet you. My name's Robert, and I'm heterosexual. And they'll, they'll kind of do this deal, and like, what? what? I said, I was going to tell you later this semester, but since you started off with I'm gay, I'm going to give you I'm a heterosexual. And they're kind of shocked, and I go, that's a trap. You are more than just your sexual identity. I am a child of God. You are a child of God. Who struggles with? And mine will be different than yours. I struggle with this and you struggle with that. I struggle with this and you struggle with this. I got some more things I struggle with than you even have. 
but I don't start with my heterosexuality. And I'll tell my class that at ACU. I said, about three quarters away, I just want to announce to you I'm heterosexual. And they're going, oh, good. And, it's like, and the guys in the back going, we knew, we knew that like the fourth weekend, you know, you were heterosexual. Well, good. You know, I was hoping you'd pick it up on the first day, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the best we can. But we've got to start finding our identity in something besides our sexual identity, especially first. So I think it's a big deal, and I think it's a real trap. And when we talk about other people who are gay, watch it. Be careful about how you talk about them. Disagreement does not mean we don't love someone. There is a deal going on that says, if you disagree with me, you do not love me. I will present this back to the kids by saying, if you are about to step in the street in front of a car and I stop you and you resent it, do I love you? Well, yeah, of course you do. But what happens when I stick my hand up and go, morally, that's a bad decision, bad call. You get mad. And you'll say things like, you're this or you're that or you don't love me. The fact is I do because I will tell you the truth. I will try to protect you from harm. Now, you may choose to push my arm away, and that's on you. But I will try to help you. And sometimes I'm going to disagree with you. And sometimes you're going to disagree with God. And you're, you just need to know that that is a principle. God has not ceased loving you because you said no. Quit telling me what to do. But he will let you eventually go that route if you choose. So uh, we got to push back against that thing that culture has told us. Last one. Do not put yourself in the role of judge and jury regarding their eternal condition. I don't tell anybody that's out there, here's what's going to happen. The Bible may be telling to them and talking to them, but I'm not going to say you're in, you're out. I try not to do that with funerals and, and stuff like that. I'm just, I'm just trying to say this is a good life. This is a good Christian person. And whether they get in the pearly gates is not my job. Some churches have made it their job and said, you don't, you're, you're not in and you are and you are and you're, I'm, you're a little iffy. But eventually, that's God who's going to make that call. So I stay out of that. 